Um, okay, guys, I wasn't here last week, uh, so missed you all, um, if you even noticed. Uh, I was preaching at Grace City in Corvallis, which, as Tyler alluded to, we're sort of a part of a family of churches. In fact, we're part of a much bigger family of churches. Um, I, I wouldn't call it our denomination. I don't think that's quite right, but it's more of our, our network or, as I like to think of it, our family of churches that we're a part of called Every Nation. Um, and it's just, it's just this big network of churches around the world. Uh, we, we're trying to plant churches. We're trying to take the gospel wherever we can. Uh, we have a special place for students. Um, we're wanting to engage with the university campus and do things like that. And so we're part of that. It's called Every Nation and Grace City is kind of our smaller sort of family within the family. That's where I was last week. And it was great. The church is really growing there. Um, have you ever been to Grace City in Corvallis? Anyone ever make it down there? Yeah. <laughs> Phenomenal church. It's our sending church. It's, it's the church that sent myself and, and Shirley and a few of us to Portland to start Grace City here. So it was very nice to be back. I, I sort of, I, I described it as uh, like coming home. Like when I go to visit my parents, I did not grow up in the house they're living in. But regardless, when I come home to visit, I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm home. This just feels right. Um, but of course, this is my real home. And I'm really, really glad to be with you guys this morning. Um, okay, enough of all that. Uh, we're going we're gonna to go to the Bible now. We started, uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. We've got some in the center aisles as well. If you want to just snatch one of the paperbacks out of one of those boxes, you're very welcome to do that. But we started our series through the book of Mark, or the gospel according to Mark. Um, I think this is week three now, and I'm really, really excited for this. This will be our longest series yet. As a, as a church, it's going to take us about six and a half months to work through the entire um, book. What do you guys think about that? Yeah. <laughs> I'm excited. I think it's going to be phenomenal. And um, we've entitled the series Mightier Than I. And if you want to go ahead and throw that up there. And the idea is, is quite simple, but it's, it's significant. Um, when we're approaching... Well, the Bible, but Mark specifically, this is not uh, an instruction manual or how to get God to sign on with, with your, your agenda and your little kingdom that you're trying to construct and build up. Uh, the gospel according to Mark is our introduction to King Jesus. It's the story of how God became king. And in fact, when uh, John the Baptist, or, or the forerunner that, that was prophesied of, who would, who would lead the way, to pave the way for the Messiah, Jesus, when he comes onto the scene at the very outset in the book of Marks, he announces Jesus as the one who is mightier than I. And this is Mark's way of setting the, the precedent for us. This is, this is how we should be thinking as we're anticipating what is about to come next? This is King Jesus. He is the mighty one. He is mightier than I. Let's find out what he's all about. That's what Mark does, and that's what we're doing. So with that, let's go ahead and go for it. Mark chapter 1. We're going to read verses 14 through 34. So we're going to take on a little chunk this morning. Here we go. 
Mark 1, starting in verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Verse 21, and they went to Capernaum, which was the same region, and immediately on the Sabbath, he, that is Jesus, entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, a demon. And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. They were all amazed. So they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Verse 29. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now, Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her, and he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her. She began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Let's start um, at the end. Let's begin with the end. He would not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. Isn't that odd? He commanded them to be silent. They said, we know who you are, the Holy One of God, you Jesus of Nazareth. Oh, we know you. What, have you come to destroy us? And he says, be silent. He wouldn't permit the demons to speak. Why? He tells us, because they knew him. What, what, why? Why? You, you would think he might be keen to take advantage of the free uh, marketing opportunity. If you've ever, some of you may have Googled this, you may have read some commentaries on this. There's definitely some ideas out there. I I think I've probably read them all. Um, I've even got a couple ideas myself. There's certainly no consensus. It's it's a slightly bizarre thing. Some uh, scholars, some Bible commenters, uh, commentators argue that, uh, well, it, it was the ancient belief 
that if you knew the name of an individual or a demon for that matter, then you could exert authority over them and command them to do your will. And because Jesus would have understood that this was the ancient mindset, he wanted to make sure that it was crystal clear who had authority in that moment. That's one theory. It doesn't quite hold water, though, because you only go a little bit further, and he, he tells people that he healed, who were sick, that he healed, to also not tell anyone about who he was. Eventually, we get to Mark chapter 9, um, which is arguably sort of the centerpiece of, of Mark, where Jesus transfigures on the mountain. He reveals himself in full glory, and he has a couple of the disciples that are with him, and they freak out, and it's this incredible moment, and they're, as they're going down the mountain, he says, do not say a word until I'm resurrected from the dead. So it's not just the demons. It would seem that Jesus doesn't want word to get out because it's just not quite time yet. My theory, and this is really a theory, I'm being very honest with you. I'm convinced it's right. But my theory is he didn't want the word to go viral yet because he had stuff to do. Like he, he had a whole bunch of stuff to get done. And as we'll find out soon enough, that inevitably the word does get out. Even the people who he heals and says, no, don't tell anyone immediately they go out and start telling people. And you, can't, you really can't blame them. They're excited. They got healed. They met Jesus. They experienced the power of God. Kind of hard not to blab about it. But he doesn't, want, he doesn't want it to go viral yet. Because he's got like a whole bunch of stuff to do. He's on a mission. He begins... Now, let me back up a little bit. The last two weeks was really the introduction to Mark. Um, Jesus was baptized. He was announced by John the baptizer, the forerunner of Jesus. Um, he was baptized by him. And then immediately he said that the Holy Spirit drove him into the wilderness. Uh, Dave, I understand, did a phenomenal job preaching on that last week. I actually listened to the podcast. It was phenomenal, in my opinion. Um, check it out. But all of that was sort of in a way of intro. And now Jesus is, is announced that the time has come. The time is fulfilled. How does he put it? It says, after John, his cousin, had been arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand or has come near. Therefore, repent and believe the gospel. It's an announcement. It's like, okay, intro over, time to get it done. And he begins Mission Jesus. And it lasts about three years, and ultimately it builds up to his final and complete work on the cross, his victory over death, signified by the resurrection, ultimately even then the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And we'll get there. It'll take us about six months or so. But this is, this is the beginning. And, and again, I would argue that the reason why Jesus doesn't want his identity to go viral yet is because he's got a whole lot of stuff to do. He's come to inaugurate his kingdom. 
He's come to declare the gospel about the kingdom that has now come near, to articulate certain details about what this kingdom is going to be like, and to demonstrate what kingdom life is meant to look like. He articulates the, the, the truth, the details about his kingdom, and then he goes on to demonstrate what, the, what an active, dynamic kingdom life looks like. And he takes his time, but he takes a few years, in fact. This is what N.T. Wright calls Jesus in the middle. Any N.T. Wright fans out there? So I got a heavy dose of Anglicanism while I was living in London and going to seminary there. Um, I think it's great. I think he has some phenomenal stuff to say. But his take on the Gospels is that um, a lot of the modern Western Reformed church these days tends to do a really good job at zooming in on the doctrinal creeds. And we focus on things like uh, the incarnation of Christ and the significance of God becoming flesh. And, and then we, we talk a whole lot about the atonement and the death and the resurrection of Christ. And that's pretty much all of the, the creeds, the apostle creeds, the Nicene creeds. But the gospels seem to say a whole lot more about Jesus in the middle. What did he do between incarnation and resurrection? He did a lot. He did a lot. He declared and demonstrated what the kingdom was like and what it, what it looked like lived out. So that's the first thing I would say about that. He's inaugurating his kingdom, inaugurating his kingdom. And we can't miss the kingdom speak. Talk of kingdom means talk of war. Because there's already a kingdom there. Of course, everyone knows that Rome is the reigning kingdom. Okay, Nero is in charge. Um, in this particular region, it's Herod. He's sort of the vice region of Rome, and he's, he's calling the shots. This is the kingdom that has been firmly, militarily established in Judea. And now Jesus, he comes on the scene proclaiming that the kingdom of God has come. This is synonymous with declaring war on the current establishment, the current kingdom. He's declaring war, he's invading the kingdom of darkness, as we'll find out. In other words, he's saying the revolution has started. The revolution has begun. And he's calling people to follow him. As soon as he's announced that the kingdom has come near, what happens next? He begins to call people, he begins to rally people to him. He goes gets, he gets Simon and Andrew, and then James and John. They're fishermen, of all people, fishermen. And we could say all sorts of things about that. Fishermen, normal, presumably, relatively uneducated people. And Jesus says, you want in on the revolution? It's going down. Come follow me. Forget the fish. Come follow me, and we'll change the world. And God only knows what these poor fishermen must have been thinking. They're probably thinking, yeah, it's on. Should I get a sword? Like, how's this going down? Like, <laughs> this is it. This is what we've been waiting for. This is what we've been praying and crying out to God for, that he would finally deliver us from oppression, 
from this, we've been enslaved in our own promised land. Finally, I think it might be the Messiah. I think he's here. I think the revolution has started. So he calls these men, and eventually he'll call women, he'll call all sorts of people to follow him. Notice the clear emphasis on the immediacy of events. The word uh, immediate is used like, like, what, 10 times or something? I would count it yourself. But Mark is like, and immediately this, and then immediately that, and then immediate, uh, immediately, that's a euthus. That's the Greek word. It's used over and over and over again. There is this sense that Jesus has not just come to talk about something to, do, to sort of promote his new philosophical idea. This is not like, hey guys, I'm starting up a Bible study. You want to come and like, we can have a, like a group discussion about Deuteronomy? Now he's like, no, I'm here to inaugurate my kingdom. Let's go now. This is happening. Action time. And there's this great sense of movement. Like this thing's happening. Something, something is going down. And so there's this, this sense of urgency, this sense of immediacy, this sense of Jesus is going someplace and he's calling people to follow him. I love uh, much, much later on in a letter that the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth. He says in 1 Corinthians 4.20 that the kingdom of God doesn't exist merely in word, but in a demonstration of power and a spirit. The kingdom of God was never meant to, to simply exist in our minds. And could we, could we agree that at least to an extent our experience of Christianity in sort of our modern Western world has become a, a primarily has become a cerebral experience. I mean, just look at us. Like this is, I'm not supposed to say this out loud, but like just look at us. Like I'm talking to you, at you, and you're all in rows. And this is great, this is helpful. But for a lot of us people, not trying to be harsh, but for a lot of people, this is it. This is the extent of my relationship with Jesus. And when we try to align that with the gospel of Mark, it should really, really challenge our perception of what the kingdom's like. Just saying. The kingdom of God is not just a matter of talk, but it consists also in power and a demonstration of the spirit. So this all begs the question, what does it look like or feel like to be a follower of Jesus? The book of Mark is precedential. It's, it, it moves quick. He doesn't waste a lot of words, but he makes some, some certain points very, very clear. And one of those points is that Jesus is calling people to follow him. He's gathering disciples, as we say. And that includes us. And so it begs the question, well, what does that look like? Because I'm not a fisherman. I'm not in a boat right now. And I don't see Jesus walking through the room like in first century sandals and a rope. So what, is, what does it look like? What does it mean for us today 21st century Portlanders or wherever you're residing at the moment 
what does it look like for us to follow Jesus? Now, what happens next, I believe, answers that question. Mark isn't just giving us like arbitrary details about like what happened. In fact, if you read all of the Gospels, particularly the Synoptics, you'll find that much of what we're given is actually not in chronological order. Um, and as it turns out, the ancients weren't terribly concerned with the chronology of history. Um, they had a whole way of thinking about history. But what he is doing is communicating something very specific and intentional. He, he sets up the tension. He begs the question and he proceeds to say, this is what it looks like. Come follow me. We're going to change the world. I'm going to make you fishers of men. Okay, what are we going to do? What's going to happen next? Well, what does happen next? The very next thing is Jesus goes to the synagogue and he begins to teach. He begins to teach. The kingdom of God doesn't merely exist in word, but the kingdom of God is actually very much uh, a matter of content and substance. There are details. There, are act, there is truth to the kingdom of God. And Jesus teaches it, and he teaches about the kingdom of God, who he is, and what is he like. You might be thinking, well, what exactly did he say? What was Jesus' sermon that day in the synagogue? And what was it about that sermon that really upset some demon-possessed person in the crowd? You ever wonder, like, where, where was Jesus getting his, like, what text was he preaching on that day? Probably preaching from Romans, if I had to guess. Is that not right? I better stay in seminary for a couple more years. You know, odds are, and you can look this up yourself, but if you ever wondered where was Jesus, like if you go through the Gospels and you want to figure out where did Jesus quote the most from, because obviously he's teaching the scriptures. Uh, Psalms are, if you count up all, like where did Jesus quote from the most, he, I think he quotes, if I'm remembering correctly, he quotes from the Psalms 10 times. You can count them up through Gospels. Number two is Deuteronomy. Jesus was in Deuteronomy which I think is fantastic because we just spent quite a bit of time in Deuteronomy ourselves, Deuteronomy, Exodus, uh, Exodus, Numbers. It's the story of Israel coming out of slavery, being delivered out of slavery through the wilderness into the promised land. And Jesus was in Deuteronomy big time. So I, if I had to guess, I'd say he was probably preaching from Deuteronomy that morning. Maybe Isaiah. Who knows? But he teaches with authority. As a follower of Jesus, is it important that I engage with the truth of God's word as if it's the authority in my life? Yeah, it's a really big deal. It's one of the reasons why if you're a brand new Christian, if we were to sit down and have a little coffee, you say, man, I just got saved. I just become a Christian. I'm not even exactly sure what that means. I said a prayer, but I'm super keen and I want to grow and I want to learn any advice. You know what my advice to you would be? Get a Bible and start reading it every day. Start developing that discipline of, of meditating on scripture, on God's word, coming to Jesus. Not the reincarnated uh, the unincarnated word of God. Don't make that mistake. Some of you are looking like, I have no idea what you're talking about. We look to Jesus who has and does reveal himself through God's word. If you want to grow, 
If you want to learn how to love Jesus more, learn how to obey him by obeying what he's commanded us in the word. You know, I was, um, when I was getting my bachelor's degree in theology in London, as I just alluded to a minute ago, I'm at Western Seminary now. I'm working on my master's degree. It's a great experience. But I was first year bachelor's degree in theology in London, and it was great, and I was having delusions of grandeur, and I thought, I, I am going to be the next N.T. Wright. I'm convinced <laughs> it's going to be great. I'm going to write books. <laughs> I'm going to be the next John Mark Comer. No, he's awesome. <laughs> And then I went along to this uh, theology conference at King's College in London, and I realized like, I was, in fact, having delusions of grandeur, and, and that none of that was ever going to happen, because these guys were properly smart. And, you know, I mean, they're throwing around the Greek and the Hebrew and even mixing in some Latin, like it's all their first language, and I'm just, my head's swimming, and I'm feeling very, very small and slightly lost, and I'm getting little bits and pieces at the break, I ended up meeting, in, uh, I think, probably the only other American there. And so I kind of latch on to him. We're talking a little bit. He clearly knew what was going on. He was one of the scholars there. And we're chatting. I'm kind of confessing to him. Like, oh, man, like, I was really excited. I'm starting this theology degree. But I, I just feel like I am in the wrong place today. And he's like, oh, don't worry about it. Like, no, no, you're, it's good that you're here. It's good that you're getting exposed to this stuff. Stick with it. And then he said, can I give you some advice? And I was like, yeah, by all means. Now I'm thinking, yes, like this is it. Like this will be my one big takeaway, the golden nugget that I can just, just chew on for years to come. And he says, yeah, okay, I'd love to give you some advice. This is something that's taken me years, decades even, to really um, learn and, and, um, and hold on to. So he's really building it up. And he says, here's my advice. Learn to read your Bible every day. And it was, it was slightly anticlimactic. I'm like, oh. <laughs> kind of doing that already? Like, you got, you got something else for me? And uh, maybe he could just see the look on my face. But he said, no, that's... He's like, a lot of these men in here, they're, all, they're amazing, they're brilliant, I'm not trying to talk down to them. But you kind of get to this level and you, you start to like you know, learn all of this stuff and learn these languages, which is very good, but eventually you can, you can actually get to the place where you just stop reading your Bible and you, you, you lose that very simple connection with Jesus in his word. And you don't ever, ever graduate from that. You mustn't ever graduate from that. Um, allow Jesus to be your teacher in his word and develop that discipline. The Holy Spirit will be uh, the one who illuminates God's word and opens your heart and gives you revelation. He will be your teacher, as Jesus said. But learn that discipline. Um, learn to meditate, to chew on God's word and let Jesus be your teacher for yourself. And so that, as a follower of Jesus, you too can articulate something true, meaningful, about what it means to be a member of the kingdom yourself. We need to be able to articulate something that's true and helpful to the people around us because uh, they will ask questions if we're doing it right. Hopefully that they will. That's the first thing. Jesus teaches with authority. Can we throw up the, the picture, please? I wanted to just say something 
Oh, these are my points, by the way. He taught, he fought, he healed, and called people to follow. Those are, that's my, my four point. And we'll... Okay. Anyone recognize this picture? This, uh, it's a, I think it's a fresco. 13th century Catholic friar. You guys recognize this one? Saint Francis of Assisi. I'm not Catholic, but he's, if I had to pick a saint, he, he'd be my guy, for sure. I love Saint Francis of Assisi. He's the one that is sort of like popularly, popular, he's the one who's been given credit <laughs> for saying, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. Have you heard this? If you study it a little bit, there's like, we have nothing, no proof of that, but he gets the credit. And it could be to do with like pictures like this. this he's famous for, I mean, what, what is he doing? Like throwing trash at the birds, feeding the birds. Uh, he's sort of the, the, the patron saint of like animals. Um, what he's actually doing, if you read a bit of the history, he's preaching to the birds. St. Francis of Assisi was known to be a prolific preacher. And as the legend goes, if he couldn't get any humans to listen to him, he'd go out to the forest and start preaching to the trees and the birds. And so it kind of makes you rethink that whole saying, you know, when necessary, use words, because St. Francis said that. No, he probably didn't. And the point's fair enough. Like, if you're not living it, if you're not demonstrating it, save your speech for someone who cares, but live it and articulate it. Declare it and demonstrate it like Jesus, because he taught, and as we'll see just now, he went on to demonstrate the power of God's kingdom. So let's keep going. Um, what does Jesus do after he's halfway through his sermon in the synagogue? He confronts a demon, a demon manifest. As I was preparing for my sermon this morning, I was thinking, how, how would you guys feel if right now in this moment, as I'm attempting to preach, a demon began to like manifest in the room? Have you ever seen that happen? Have you ever been in a, in a meeting? Or It's not really something you're hoping will happen. It's, it's, it's rather terrifying, actually, um, at least when it's, when it's legit. I definitely don't wish that for us. But if it were to happen, where, where would your head be at in that moment? How, how would we respond? What would our mindset be? Would we, like Jesus, realize that, oh, well, of course we have a conflict here. He's inaugurating a new kingdom. He's declaring war, not on Rome, but on the kingdom of darkness. And the spiritual forces of wickedness who lived in this place and have enjoyed power and authority for who knows how long are now being challenged by the king. The king has come home. And the demons recognize it. And they begin to freak out. They're terrified. They are terrified. James says in James chapter 2, verse 19, he says, you believe God is one? Uh, well done, you. So do the demons and they shudder. They're terrified of the king because he has all authority in heaven and on earth. And he confronts the demonic. Um, I have a quote, if we can go there. Um, 
Anyone ever read the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis? It's so good. You can't talk about demons at, at church without quoting from the Screwtape Letters. So this is Uncle Screwtape uh, talking to his underling nephew, Wormwood, um, in an exchange of letters. And Wormwood, sort of the, the um, what, how do they describe it? Kind of the novice tempter, junior level tempter, has been assigned his first case. And he's been given a Christian who he's meant to like tempt and lead astray. And he's struggling. He's having a really hard time. And so he's writing to his uncle Screwtape for advice. How do I handle this Christian? And this is, this is some advice that uncle Screwtape gives him. He says, I do not think you will have much difficulty in keeping the patient in the dark. The fact that quote unquote devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, he therefore cannot believe in you. And I would say that so perfectly encapsulates our, our, our modern Western mindset. We have been inoculated to the spirit realm. We have been convinced that this is just silly Hollywood stuff. And of course, I, I hope we all know that like when, when the Bible is talking about demonic activities, nothing to do with anything in red tights. Amen. Obviously, that, that is Hollywood. Amen. And yet we cannot get away from the reality that in the scriptures, particularly in the gospels, the demons were freaking out everywhere that Jesus went. And Mark doesn't go to great, great lengths to like explain it or qualify it or be like, well, you know, I know this is probably hard for you to you know, understand and, and you know, let me apologize for making you uncomfortable for talking about this. Like, none of that. He just says it as, like, as a matter of fact. Jesus preached and demons freaked out. That's the reality when you declare war on a kingdom of darkness. There are going to be dark casualties this is what happens. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. I think it's ironic that this demon even says, what did you come to destroy us? And uh, what is it, James, no, Romans, yeah, James 2.19. He said that, is that where it is? No, it's 1 John, I have it here. Yeah, there it is. 1 John 3.8. That Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. So when the demon cries out, he says, wait, have you come to destroy us? The answer is yes, absolutely. Ding, ding, ding. That's, that's why I'm here. Well done, you. Now shut up and come out. Jesus destroys evil forces. By the way, um, next he goes on to heal a sick person. And so we're going to see sort of like two sides of one coin. On one hand, he's confronting the demonic. He's actually opposing this evil force, as it were. And then he moves on to then heal um, a sick woman, the mother-in-law of, of Simon. So he's not only declaring war on evil forces, but he's also come to set captives free, to heal the wounded, to bind the brokenhearted, to bring wholeness to those who are sick and broken. This is what Paul refers to as genuine love. He says in Romans 12, let your love be genuine. Abhor what is evil 
and cling to what is good. This is how Jesus loves. He confronts evil and he heals the sick. He also teaches with authority. This is mind, body, and spirit. It's holistic discipleship is what we say. It's good stuff. He heals sick people. Teaches with authority. He destroys evil forces. He heals sick people. And number four, he calls people to follow him. And this is probably the most characteristic distinction of a follower of Jesus. You know what a follower of Jesus does? They follow Jesus. Hold on, let me say it another way. (laughs) Followers of Jesus, how can I put this? Let me go to the chalkboard. How, How about this? This is where creeds can actually be really helpful. The most ancient of all of the church's creeds. You guys know what it is? Jesus is Lord. That's arguably the most ancient of all the ancient creeds within the Christian church. Jesus is Lord. And to be a follower of Jesus means that you follow Jesus. He becomes your master. He becomes your king. Later on, he'll tell his disciples that now I'm calling you my friends. But in the same breath, he says, it's good that that you call me master. But I want you to know that I'm not like any other master you've ever known. Think of me like your friend. Because I didn't just come to set you free and then leave you be. I came to call you to myself. To experience relationship with me. Guys, that's, that's, that's the big picture. That's the overarching story. Is that God is on a rescue mission to bring lost sons and daughters home. Because he loves us. Sometimes I wonder why. But he does. He loves us to death. But he is Lord. He is Lord. The demons are right to tremble before the king. So are we. Because our king is awesome. It is right to fear the Lord. It is right to view God not only as my buddy, but as my master, my king. To love him is to obey him to submit ourselves to his authority. And I'm, I'm belaboring this a little bit because I think this is something we really struggle with. Not, not Grace City necessarily per se, but I'm, I'm talking about the church in general. I think the, the creed has kind of been changed a little bit to Jesus is Lord-ish. Ish. Depends on the situation. Depends on whether or not Jesus' teachings uh, align with 
you know, my opinions. There's some really, really challenging stuff in here. Oh my goodness. If you actually do start reading your Bible every day, eventually you're going to get some stuff. You're like, whoa, hang on a second. What did I sign up for? Which is exactly what Jesus' disciples eventually did. I mean, at one point he said, look, if you want to follow me, you're going to have to eat my body and drink my blood. They're like, whoa, what does that even mean? And a bunch of people leave him. And then he looks to his disciples, his faithful disciples, the ones that he, he just called, that we just read about. And he said, what about you guys? Do you also want to leave me? And they turned to him and said, where are we going to go? You have the words of life. We may not understand, but you are Lord. You are an authority. We trust you. You have proven yourself to be faithful. You have all power. And so they followed. They followed. Jesus' followers follow Jesus. All right, we need to wrap up. The whole city was gathered together at the door. I love that. Mark is so good at getting us to like imagine these scenarios. What would we do if on a Sunday morning, like we look down those stairs and we're like, my goodness, like is there a marathon going down MLK or something? Like what are all of these people doing here? And it turns out, oh, they, they heard that Jesus was present and by his spirit, evil was being vanquished and sick people were being healed. The kingdom of God is touching down. It's getting near and near and near and near. And that's not just talk. This is not just a battle of ideologies. The kingdom of heaven is breaking out and the spirit of Christ is present in his people because we've gathered together in his name. And what if the word got out and the whole city started gathering at the door. And I'm not talking about Grace City. What if, what if the, the church across the city, we start hearing report after report after report that the churches in Portland, Oregon are just exploding with people because the spirit of Christ is present among his people. What about that? Would you guys be into that? I would totally, that's, I mean, I pray for that. I, I wish for that. I hope for that. That's what I want. That's what I want. Relevant, okay, hear this. Relevant Christianity is boring. You guys know what I mean by that? (laughs) Simply trying to keep it all PC and kosher doesn't change the world. Okay, now the opposite isn't like let's all be super annoying and like weird, wacky Christians and like try to overcompensate because of like whatever. Okay, if in case you're thinking, yeah, let's be weird, that'll be it. No, it's not, it's never it. <laughs> Portland's weird. Relevant Christianity is powerless Christianity. It's form without power. It's spirituality without the Holy Spirit. It's truth without grace. It's mastering rote while the heart grows cold. It's boring and it's really easy to ignore. But resilient Christianity, like Mark chapter one Christianity, 
That's something else. Following King Jesus, telling the world about him, subverting evil, setting captives free, binding up the wounded, healing the sick and broken. If we get about that, gosh, if we at least just start praying for that and taking some risks, we might see the whole city at our doors. We might see the whole city rock up. Let's end with the beginning. Because this, this must be said. Um, you know you're doing decent theology when, when you find yourself in great tension. Jesus announces that the kingdom is coming just after what? It says, John was arrested. Therefore, Jesus announced that the kingdom had come, that the time was fulfilled and the kingdom had come. Does anyone find that slightly difficult? Jesus' cousin John, John the forerunner, John the prophet, is now in jail. He will be beheaded in due time. Why? Because he was calling out Herod for marrying his brother's wife. Didn't really like it, so he arrested him. He wouldn't kill him, though, because he enjoyed listening to John. We're told eventually uh, John's, or sorry, Herod's wife, or sister-in-law, however you want to look at it, um, had a daughter, and they had a big party, and her daughter came out and did this dance for Herod and his guests. You can only imagine how that must have been, and he liked it so much, and they'd been drinking, and And presumably, and he liked it so much that he said, you name it, I'll give you up to half of my kingdom. And so she goes back to her mom and she's like, dude, like they they bought it. What what should I ask for? And she says, ask him for the head of John on a platter. And so he's like, and it says that Herod was distraught. He's like, oh goodness. Like this is a holy man. Like this guy, I could bring a curse upon myself. But he doesn't want to embarrass himself. He doesn't want to lose face in front of his guests. So he goes for, he sends for John's head and he gives it to this teenage girl. He says, here you go. This is, talk about demonic. And he brings it to her mother and she's overjoyed. The kingdom's breaking out and John's in prison. Okay, this is super important, guys. People might be getting healed. People might be getting set free. Others might be dying in prison. This is the tension that we live in as followers of Jesus now. Oh, it's a hard tension to live in. It's a very hard reality to embrace that although Jesus is king and he's inaugurated his kingdom and he's calling us to follow him and and to join in on the revolution, we have to remember that we're in the now but not yet that King Jesus will return. You don't hear this preached a whole lot. I have to remind myself as a preacher, don't forget to tell the people that Jesus is not finished yet. He is coming back to complete the work that he has started. And in the interim, we're to be about his business, boldly following him, trusting him, coming up against evil wherever we see it. And it doesn't have to look like casting out devils. It could. But standing up against evil systems, evil voices, oppression, 
evil legislation, wherever we see the kingdom of darkness advancing, we're to take our stand, to speak truth, to pray. You wanna talk about unleashing spiritual power in Portland? Guys, let's pray. Let's pray in the name of Jesus and see walls come falling down. Oh, that's right, Tuesday morning. Tuesday morning we pray. You're now listening to Grace City Portland.